It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. This week we're asking, should America's mega companies be broken up? It's a question being tackled head on by today's guest, Amy Klobuchar, a lawyer by training who's been a senator for her home state of Minnesota since 2007. Before that, she was a prosecutor in Minnesota's largest county, dealing with, among other things, problems of police violence firmly on the agenda today. And with a new president in the White House, a fellow Democrat, her sights are set firmly on a problem which she believes is plaguing the American economy and exacerbating wider unfairness, the agglomeration of power among a handful of huge corporations, including trillion-dollar tech companies like Apple, Google and Amazon. Time for a rethink, Senator Klobuchar says, and she's written a book, Antitrust, taking on monopoly power from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. It charts the long history of antitrust action, offers a plan to reinvigorate antitrust law in the 21st century, and she's introducing a bill to Congress in pursuit of change. Amy Klobuchar, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thank you, Anne. It's great to be on. Now, the word antitrust, which is the the heart of what you've been writing about, it strikes me as a bit of a historical artefact. <laughs> it it just it harks back to a time when big oil, rail and steel trusts had their grip on the American economy. It's a steampunk era term. How much has changed since the days of Standard Oil and the Sherman Act? And is antitrust the right concept for what you want to tackle now in the 21st century? Well, one, you're right. It's an old word. And it goes back to those big trusts that were once broken up by uh, presidents like Theodore Roosevelt. Um, But I like the word in a funny way, because it allowed for a book title that was a metaphor about what's going on right now with all of our institutions, antitrust. Um, And the third thing, I would actually prefer to call it competition policy like they do in Europe, but I'm kind of stuck with our words we have here right now, even though I do make that case in the book. And I do think there's relevance to what happened in history, or I wouldn't have written that history, including the story of the woman that started the Monopoly game, invented it, and no one really knows this, but she actually hated Monopolies. Um, or the story of the muckraker Ida Tarbell that took on Standard Oil. The reason it's relevant is that we've now reached our own gilded age, um, and the players are different, and the companies are more sophisticated. They have names like Google and Facebook. Uh, they are companies that do things like increase the price of a simple drug like insulin or take a baby's heart drug by the competitor, corner the market, and take the treatment cost from 80 bucks a treatment to $1,600, the story that I lead the book with. So I would argue even more than back then, we need antitrust enforcement cards on that monopoly board. Uh, we need a check and balance on these companies. For those of us who believe in capitalism and believe that we must rejuvenate it by having more competitors, 
it's a literal cause that has to be met, or we are going to become another China uh, with just gatekeeper companies and no choices for consumers. We've seen corporate concentration rise during the pandemic, but also general trend in that direction in in many industries. Are you more concerned ultimately about technology than you are about other American industries? I know, as, as you've just referenced, that you range more broadly. But is there something specifically concerning about technological consolidation? Well, there is. But I do want to make clear my solutions. I have 25 um ideas uh, for what would change things at the end. And they include things like um, uh, making it easier for small businesses, women and minority-owned businesses. They're not just about antitrust law. I think it's a across-the-board problem. It was John Oliver, the comedian, who at the end of a half-hour segment he did on consolidation, he said, if all of this is enough to make make you want to die, good luck, because there's only three casket makers left. And actually, one has now bought the other, so there's only two. I think the challenge with tech is that um, it is um, such an animal unto itself, and it has given us these incredible innovations and employs so many people, and all that's great. None of that really has to go away. When AT&T was broken up, they had given us a bunch of great things in America and across the world as well. But that did not stop our government from saying, wait a minute, this is a vertical monopoly. They own all the equipment under it. And it's a horizontal monopoly in terms of the phone service. And we want to have more options. We want to have more options with cell phones. They broke them up. Long distance rates went up. Cell phone options went through the roof, and AT&T itself said they were a stronger company because they were forced to compete. That's what we're dealing with right now. So when it comes to tech, you can do this by regulation, yes. You can put in place privacy regulations. Europe is doing this. Margaret Vestager and I uh, work together all the time. You can do it with privacy regulations and limits on misinformation and limits on immunity. Um, and then you can put in special things like for app stores. We just had a big hearing on that. Um, but you could also do it um, through generic antitrust enforcement, which I think is a good way to go. And then finally, finally, uh, you can unleash the power of capitalism. How will we ever know if Instagram or WhatsApp would have developed the bells and whistles to do a better job on privacy or misinformation? We don't because in Mark Zuckerberg's word in an email that was discovered last year, he literally said these brands are nascent, but they are meaningful. And then in his words, they could become disruptive to us. And then he bought them. And in another email, he said, We'd rather buy than compete. As you know, speaking to the economists here, if you have a free market that really works because it's not controlled by market, something Adam Smith believed, uh, the father of capitalism, when he said, beware of the standing army of monopolies. If you have a free market that works, then companies can develop solutions to problems like misinformation and privacy. When you have monopolies controlling search engines and monopolies controlling app stores, you're not going to get those innovations that would allow you to get at the true problems that the products are creating. Well, let me be devil's advocate on that and say that historically the government intervened when there was evidence that a big company was causing consumers harm. But it seems that consumers do continue to buy stuff from Amazon because it's so convenient. They like to use Google services and spend money on Apple's store. So if the standard for intervening on antitrust changes, don't you risk hurting users who are pretty happy with what they're getting? 
I'm a believer in markets. Um, and I think that when you have one gatekeeper, you're not going to go to where you want to go. And that's historically what's been true about markets. And so I don't think these innovations will go away. Anne. Well, it's not the question whether they go away. No, but let me let me just finish. I'm not talking about destroying them. I'm I'm talking about allowing competitors to have a chance. Look what happened in Australia. They Google had 90% market share there and 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 so so did uh, Facebook. When Australia tried to charge for content in order to bolster up news organizations, which I think we should do here as well, then they said, well, we're taking our marbles, we're going home, and good luck with that because we have 90% of the market share. That is what monopolies do. Then there was public pushback. Microsoft did stand up and said, hey, we'll do this. But they were less than 10% of the market share. They were less than 5% of the market share. Um, and so that's not a realistic option right now. And I think we need realistic options. And to get there, you need to put conditions in place. So these uh, monopolies, uh, Google and Apple on the app stores, aren't allowed to say, hey, you can't even say if you can get a cheaper deal on the website. And we're going to, by the way, charge you 30% of what you bring in. But we're not going to charge some companies. Maybe we'll focus more on our competitors. This is wrong. This is why Europe embarked on a year-long investigation of the app stores. These companies can still offer their innovative products, but maybe they won't be the only ones. The battle royale on this between the maker of Fortnite, Epic Games, and Apple, the world's most valuable tech firm, has just begun in federal court. That's in California. But legal experts do expect Apple to win. So given that expectation, how would you propose reigning in tech firms? It sounds like you need to change the laws, but you'd still have this huge long tail of cases that will go on and on. Okay. Well, first of all, I don't concede what will happen in that case after the hearing that we just had where there was bipartisan Republican Democrats horror at what we learned from Spotify, Tile, and Match.com. Um, and so what I would propose, first of all, is that uh, we need to have stronger enforcement agencies. And that means uh, making sure they're not a shadow of their former selves, which they are right now, even from the Ronald Reagan days. Senator Grassley, who's a Republican from Iowa and I, uh, actually have a bill uh, that would put more funding into those agencies. I think that's really important. You can't take on the biggest companies the world has ever known with duct tape and Band-Aids. The second thing is that you have to have the investigations occur so that the answer may be simply putting in conditions so that you're allowed to talk about where you can get a cheaper deal so that you don't have to pay 30%. And no, not all that money is necessary for security. One of the things that we hope to learn in the Epic Games case is how much money Apple is really making off of their app stores because they claim they need all that money for security. Epic Games, I think, has projected in one public document that they think it's like 75% profit turn. Okay, that's pretty high. And so all of that should go into the thinking of either regulators that look at it, and if they won't, then yeah, you could pass a bill that would put in some constraints on um, what's happening with the app stores to allow for more fairness for those that are purchasing apps on the app stores. Just to be, to be clear, do you see a reasonable chance that Epic Games could still win this case? 
I don't ever project. I used to be a prosecutor. I never predict what happens in these cases. But what I do know is that there is, after sitting through this hearing, after hearing about how Google had actually, one of their business people, had called a business person at Match.com that eve of our hearing and said to them, oh, hey, we just looked at your public testimony that your company is going to give tomorrow. Boy, that's a lot different than your earnings report to your shareholders where you said you were working with us. Come on. That's what a monopoly does. That's threatening behavior. That's why we're investigating it. And I have heard from so many other companies that have never said a word because they're afraid that they're going to be hurt by Google or Apple um, with the app store. So they don't come forward. They just tell us. Like, this is really bad. You guys should do something about it. So I'm really thankful that those three companies have come forward and told their stories for the world to hear. Because whatever happens in that lawsuit, there is a major problem going on with the app store monopolies. And once the verdict is reached, whichever way it goes, the question is, if you look at the European Commission's remedies, I know you work closely with the uh, European Union on this question, is that not much seems to change. And that actually is, in, in some sense, is surprising or disappointing to many in Europe. If you look at an example of Alphabet, the Google parent company, which was fined multiple times, remedies were demanded, indeed imposed by the commission. But in fact, the market share for Google has hardly budged. So it would appear to have been ineffectual. It's the beginning. And when you look at the breakup of AT&T, that took several American presidencies to get through it. And there hasn't been enough action in America. People with the Obama administration are now saying that. I have an interview uh, in my book uh, that I included from Carl Swisher um, of um, Gene Sperling, who had been with the Obama administration and is now doing good work with the um, Biden administration. And he says, yeah, we should have looked more carefully at those deals in retrospect. So not much has happened at all in the U.S., let's be honest. The only major suits that happened were at the very end of the Trump administration. And by the way, I'm glad they brought those suits, and I'm glad that it's bipartisan from one administration to another, the major lawsuits against Facebook and Google. That's just the beginning. So I think that as Americans, we should take some responsibility here, that it's time for us to join with Europe and act. And I think that's what you see finally happening out of these departments. But it's my job as a member of the Senate and a leader in this area to say, okay, we got to make sure we have the funding so that they can do these lawsuits, because they actually are profit centers. They tend to bring in money uh, when they sue in the antitrust area. So it's going to be worth its dime on the suits alone. And then secondly, we need to up Update our standards. The world has changed greatly since Senator Sherman passed the Sherman Act uh, way back when they didn't even have a web, much less an app store. Uh, and we need to update our laws, including our privacy laws in the U.S. So I believe some of this is on us. You're a member of the Senate, as you just reminded us. It's the biggest duopoly going, isn't it? What do you mean, the House and the Senate? Or what do you mean? Do you know that the colonists came over, that the original settlers came over from <laughs> Great Britain in part because of monopolies? I'll put up my hands to that. My point is, if you have a political system, largely in the, U- in the US and the UK are comparable in this regard, less so than all the, some of the European countries that actually do have duopoly, don't they? They have big centre-left and a big, well, we used to say centre-right, but big party uh, on, on the right. I wonder if you sometimes feel that the political offer is a, a, a little bit too constrained if one's talking about monopoly powers. 
Oh, well, totally. Yes, I, I firmly believe that. And uh, one of the problems is, and I point this out in the book, is that when you have monopolies, they actually fund uh, members, basically. And that's through time. There's a famous cartoon I have in there of the big mo- uh, monopolies, these bloated steel trust, standard oil trust sitting above the Senate, right? Just basically pulling the strings. And this is back during the Gilded Age. Well, that happens in a different way right now. So I would argue for major changes to campaign finance reform. Uh, I would argue for much more disclosure of what is going on. And then, of course, I would change those Senate rules and the filibuster, archaic rules that's made it impossible to move on things. Because one of the reasons I wrote the book is I felt just everything I tried to do, as you've just pointed out, it was a game of whack-a-mole. Try to pass this bill. I got bipartisan support. Yay. But then someone stops it over here. Someone stops it over there. And it's all behind closed doors. And it's time to get all of the facts and the truth out in the public. I've got people on both sides of the aisle that agree with me so we can actually get something done. But to do that, I need political support and a political movement. Just before we we move on from this, because I'd love to just open up a a couple of other alleyways for you, but I'd love to know if you think Donald Trump should be banned from Twitter and Facebook indefinitely. The Oversight Board of Facebook has upheld the platform's decision to ban Donald Trump after those posts he released uh, relating to the attack on the Capitol in January, should they be deciding who gets deplatformed? You know, I think that it was the right decision. And when you have this enormous power, they are consulting with others. Um, and I think that Donald Trump is the disinformer in chief. Uh, when you look back, he is still, you know, maybe if he had changed his tune and said he was wrong, but this is a guy that basically is still discrediting our democracy. He is lying to people. He's telling them that uh, he actually won the election. He is casting doubt. And as we know from the insurrection, people were believing that. And his primary and really only conveyor for those views was social media platform. But the question is who makes the decision? You think it's the right thing to do, but is this oversight board the right way to do it? I think it's the right thing to do. By the way, I've called for 12 accounts that one study showed um, accounts for over 60% of the misinformation on vaccines. And as for them to be banned, ask the social media companies to look at it. They did, and they banned a number of them. And this was an outside group did a study uh, where these accounts get either shared or posted again or tweeted again, and it accounts for so much of the misinformation in America. Um, And so, you know, these guys are making huge money, the social platforms. I think that they should be able to hire the people to do the checking um, to get this stuff off of there because it is greatly influencing people. um, And that's just not right. Um, It's going people are going to die because people, other people or themselves are believing stuff like the vaccines. As I heard from a neighbor, uh, the vaccines uh, put a microchip in your arm. A guy that worked at a cafe right down the block from me, he said his mother-in-law wasn't getting the vaccine because of that. And she read it where she read it on Facebook. Let's talk about something else. We're approaching the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. It's uh, May the 25th. You were public prosecutor in Minnesota's largest county uh, for eight years, from the late 1990s. You have faced some criticism for not doing more to bring police accused of of criminal uh, acts to justice. What would you have done differently, if anything, knowing what you know now or having learned what we've learned from uh, many recent cases, police violence, police brutality? First, just about George Floyd. Uh, This happened not far from where I live. And 
that verdict, when that came through, was a moment of redemption. And I just kept thinking of those witnesses and how they had lived with that burden on their shoulders, how they talked about agonizing, waking up in the middle of the night, thinking they could do more. I think about the police officers who came forward and testified against Derek Chauvin. But when the witnesses asked, could they do more? We should be doing more. And to me, that means passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And as I look back as my time in prosecutor, uh, the premise of your question, um, yes, there's more that we should have done. Um, not in, this isn't about his specific case, but in general, there is racism, systemic racism in our criminal justice system. We need a change in the standard. Uh, right now, um, it's necessary um, uh, reasonable force, and it should go to necessary force from reasonable force. Uh, we have a situation where often in the past grand juries were used because it was felt, um, and I did this too, that was the best way to get politics out of it. Well, I would have done those decisions myself now. Working with the Innocence Project and having conviction integrity units, when I was a prosecutor, I did do that. We did a DNA review of all of our cases. I advocated for videotaped interrogations. But these conviction integrity units, which we did not have back then, uh, that's a good idea. And I'm a strong believer in them and even asked Merrick Garland about them at his hearing for attorney general. So there are so many things that we have learned from that time where we must do better. What changed your mind or sharpened your view? I think a lot of people have learned a lot, frankly, in the last uh, 10 years and, and beyond, and maybe even in more recent times. And I'm just curious, as an experienced prosecutor, were there cases or experiences that have made you, as you say, you've not entirely changed your view, but I get the sense that you want more focus on it and perhaps for yourself personally too. Yeah. I remember when I used to talk about the criminal justice system to high school kids, I'd say, well, it's like that TV show Law and Order, you know, the first half the police investigate the crime and then it goes to the prosecutor. That's our part. And that was true in the way the system works. But when I step back and after everything I've seen uh, since I've left there, I realized, wait a minute, let's go back to the very beginning. What cases are coming our way? Why is it that African-American men are killed by police at twice the rate? Why are they using things like chokeholds, which I have put forward a bill to ban? How come a kid named Dante Wright uh, gets stopped for expired tabs and ends up shot? That's what the justice question should be. Yes, we want to be fair and take on the cases we get from the police. But if you're a believer in true justice, you have to actually step back and look at the whole story. And that's what I think we need to do more and what you're seeing modern day prosecutors do. And that's what I am trying to do in the Senate uh, by working to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, something that Senator Cory Booker is leading. And as we speak, uh, working to get it done and making progress um, and I'm very hopeful that we will be able to reach President Biden's goal of passing it before the anniversary of George Floyd's death. There's a story that surfaced about you when you were running for the Democratic presidential ticket in 2019, giving your staffers a hard time. And there's one memorable anecdote that stuck with me about you eating a salad with a comb on a, a flight after a long day. One of your staff wasn't able to put their hands on some cutlery and there was a bit of scolding about that and then being asked to clean it. It got you a reputation being a bit hard on your staffers. Is that fair? I think you all learn lessons from your life experiences. And I certainly 
uh, have learned from that. And I am just so proud of our staff, including the staff uh, I had before I was running for president. Um, A number of them, including Jake Sullivan, uh, maybe you can interview him one day. Uh, He is now the president's national security advisor. He was my counsel in Washington. His brother, Tom Sullivan, uh, worked for me for five or six years as my deputy chief of staff. He is now Tony Blinken's uh, top advisor in the State Department and was with him at Anchorage uh, when they negotiated with the Chinese. Um, a number of uh, my staff have gone on to do incredible things. The city attorney of St. Paul, one of President Obama's, his lead scheduler. So I just look at it as I have been a, uh, I have, as I said, um, I, I'm tough sometimes, but I don't think that should be confused with not uh, supporting and caring for my staff and being very proud of them and everything that they've done. Have you ever apologized to staffers if you felt that you'd been tough on them? Sure. I mean, people, I think people do that a lot in workplaces. When I read that story, it reminded me a lot of my early years in journalism. And, you know, there was a bit of telephone hurling and cursing around in the newsroom that maybe wouldn't pass muster now. And I wondered if you felt that politics is changing that way as well. I mean, do you have to be more, I think, as you once memorably put it, Minnesota nice? Well, I think that uh, everyone deserves to work in a good workplace. And I think one of the most um, amazing changes in the last few years have been that workplaces are finally taking on the issue of sexual harassment. And I actually led the bill in the Senate and passed it um, for training on sexual harassment um, in light of the Me Too um, uh, movement of everyone, including senators. And I led the bill on changing our standards. We found out, like so many workplaces, that it was a Byzantine system for people to try to report incidences of sexual harassment. And we took it on and changed it, along with Senator Blunt, uh, who I work with. And the two of us ran the inauguration um, uh, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, So, you know, I think there are a lot of changes that are going on in workplaces, not to mention today that we're in a transition where a number of employees are remote and what's going to happen when the pandemic's done. Um, And I think you always have to change with the times and listen to your employees. Do you think it's unfair? I mean, do you think there's to flip the question a bit? Because you could say I had a bit of a suppressed premise of picking up stories about you and other powerful women, which sometimes perhaps are less asked of men. Is there some truth in that? that? There's a... A higher standard, but a double standard, that a man is forth, forthright and a woman is bossy. <laughs> I just know that I am responsible for my own actions. Um, and I think apart from that, and I'm not going to relate this to that, I think we all know in politics for women, uh, apart from any of the uh, employee issues, it's not been an easy. I made that point on the debate stage uh, many times. If it was so easy, we could play a game called Name Your Favorite Woman President. And we can't because there never has been one. Uh, But I am so proud of Kamala Harris. As I said at the inauguration, um, when I spoke before she came up to take the oath of office, it was the first time in American history uh, that all the women who had tried, um, one of whom was sitting on that stage, um, Hillary Clinton, to achieve one of the highest offices in the land, Kamala was the first. And she's the first Uh, Asian-American and the first African-American to do it. Uh, And it was a glorious moment for our country. Last thought before we head off, you reminded me when you were talking about Margaret Vestager, we've had on this show as well. She runs the big antitrust activity in the European Union. She told me that she doesn't shop on Amazon 
Do you? I do. Um, and I just think the answer to all this can't, I mean, and I, I love working with Margaret. I just have a different view. Um, one, I, I like it because I know what's going on. And I kept thinking, okay, Whole Foods is on there now. I, I get a, a, a firsthand sense of this, uh, including hilarious things that aren't at all related to these. I don't even know which online shopping I did that led me to somehow mistakenly, on my own mistake, order quart size, ten, eight or ten quart size things of pumpkin yogurt because I thought they were small and I had those in the refrigerator or gigantic potatoes. So I think having those experiences is good and helpful, including wearing a Fitbit. Um, and uh, that led me to think, okay, where's the data going for that? And then that led me to do a bill with the Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski uh, that I bet we pass as part of any tech reform, uh, which is about keeping that data private. So I don't think the answer is just to stop using all of this. I think the answer is to make sure you've got competitive alternatives and that you are protected as a consumer. So that's how I've taken it on. The first time I felt very sorry for your staffers is the thought that they've got stuck with several litres of pumpkin yogurt <laughs> that you all have to bless. No, the, the staff didn't have to eat the pumpkin yogurt, I promise. I froze some of it is what I did, yes. But that's a party to which we're not so keen to be invited. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course, we'd love to know what you think on this topic. Are America's corporate beer moths overdue a haircut? Is there any chance of getting this kind of reform through Congress? Let alone what would you do with 10 quarts of pumpkin-flavoured yoghurt? Your answers, please, to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And while we've got your attention over on our website, our science and technology team explain why the sat-nav systems we've come to rely on may be in danger of jamming up. And our US team reports on comparisons between Joe Biden and FDR. Justified or just premature? I'd highly recommend subscribing. For your best introductory offer, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.